0: And technical difficulties right off the bat. The beauty of being the one who preaches is you get to take off the mask. So uh, I want to. First of all, it's really good to see those of you who are here here this morning. It's very moving. Second of all, I want to be able to thank uh, very hardworking staff and leaders who've uh, been uh, uh, over the last three months making a lot of things happen by their creativity and hard work, but not to take anything away from those of us who are called to do that and serve here at the church. But I do also want to mention one particular person who has given above and beyond uh, in that uh, arena, and that is Greg Lauck, who is standing in the back in the booth. Thank you, Greg. A lot of this would not be happening without his work behind the scenes, so I really appreciate that. So... I want to begin this morning with a thought experiment. I want you to just take a moment and think about something on planet Earth that you are very passionate about, that it, would, that it should be fixed. Something that is broken, some injustice, some imperfection, some hurt that needs to be healed. Just think of one. Now, you may have many that you could think of, um, but this morning, just pick one. One of those things. And then I want you to try and hold it in the front of your mind as we walk through our passage this morning. Pick that one thing. There are many things to be concerned about in the modern world, of course. Many things about which we might say, when will this ever change? When will God's will be done, God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in this particular thing, on this particular issue? And we may be tempted to cry out as the psalmist does in Psalm 94. How long, Lord? Will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Have you ever felt that way about something? About the thing that perhaps you're holding in your mind right now? And that's okay. If you have, I have. Whether our passion is poverty or racism or injustice or abortion or the environment or the persecution of Christians or something else, Some place where things in the world are not the way they're supposed to be, we can become discouraged in the battle. We can wonder if things will ever change, if God will ever triumph over his enemies and put the world to rights. And, of course, foundational to all of this is our calling to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God and to invite others into that kingdom by coming to faith in the king of that kingdom, Jesus of Nazareth. For not only do we want all that is wrong to be fixed and all that is broken to be healed, we want all people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as well. In the Apostle Paul's letter to uh, the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15, he writes that, Jesus has disarmed the powers and the authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is both something that is true now and something that has yet to be fulfilled. We, that's the tension we live in. This same idea is echoed over in Revelation eleven fifteen, where the seventh angel sounds the last trumpet of John's vision and loud voices in heaven shout out of a day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so our good news is this. In Christ, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God. In Christ, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God. Too often, uh, the kingdoms of this world represent what some scholars call a spirit of empire. A spirit of empire. Empires, historically speaking, are rich and powerful and they believe they have the right to rule over other nations and to shape other nations in all parts of the world with their sometimes very warped agendas. Again, keeping in mind that one particular issue that I asked you to put at the forefront of your thoughts this morning, that issue that you feel passionate about, in the end, whatever that is, the principalities and the powers, the empires that reign over and feed that injustice, that wrongdoing, that evil, in the end they will submit to the kingship of Christ and all things will be made right the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our God. Now, theologically speaking, uh, this is already the case. It's just that most kingdoms don't know it yet or are actively rebelling against it. Keeping all of that in mind, let's engage our passage. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 12, we get a little backstory of King Herod Agrippa just before we learn what he's up to in the present. Now, there are several Herods in the New Testament, so it can be a bit confusing. You should know that they're all related, but there are several of them. This one, Herod Agrippa, is the third one, chronologically speaking. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one you may remember in the Gospels, who upon hearing of the birth of Jesus from the Magi had all the little boys two years old and under put to death. This is not a good family. They do bad things all the time. All the other Herods mentioned in the New Testament were sons, grandsons, or great-grandsons of Herod the Great. Luke writes in Acts 12, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, King Herod Agrippa, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread." After arresting him, he put, Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Herod Agrippa was a very powerful king, and he was generally liked by the Jewish people uh, that he ruled over, because he was favorable to their wants and their needs as he represented them before Rome. We can see this in the opening verses. It appears that after he had James put to death and he saw that this pleased the larger Jewish population and their leaders, he proceeded to go after Peter too. Now to keep things in perspective, these three people, James, Peter, and John, were sort of the inner circle of Jesus' leadership team while he walked among us on the earth. To Herod's way of thinking, to the empire's way of thinking, they're the head of the organization. If you behead the organization... You can, you can destroy it. And if they loved it when he killed James, killing Peter is going to send his approval ratings through the roof. And I want you to take note. This is no short stay in a minimum security cell. Herod has Peter guarded by four squads of four soldiers. Probably one squad at a time on a rotating basis, but still, 16 soldiers to guard one man. This is Herod using brute force to make his point. By all measures, even though the Jewish leadership liked him, Herod Agrippa was a violent king. And he wants to make sure Peter stays put so he can get down to business once Passover is over. And then we have this little hint of subversion going on right under Herod's nose in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter's in prison, but the church is earnestly praying to God for him. Luke, the author of Acts, plants this little seed of subversion right in the rocky, dry soil of violence and oppression in the middle of Herod's garden. He lets us know that something else is going on here that Herod and his minions simply cannot see or understand. The kingdom of God is taking shape in the world, and Herod doesn't even see it. It begins with prayer. Prayer is subversive. Prayer is subversive. I don't, I don't pretend to know exactly how prayer works. I certainly don't pretend to know how God makes decisions in terms of how he answers our prayers. But I do know prayer is key. And I do know that prayer is subversive. It is subversive in what it accomplishes in the world, and it is subversive in the impact that it has on those of us who pray, especially if it becomes a part of our lives. And then the story moves rather quickly. Peter, guarded by four guards, chained up between two of them is asleep. And suddenly, he is politely nudged awake, says struck him on the side by an angel. Light floods the place, and the angel and the chains fall off and the angel tells Peter to put your clothes on, put your sandals on, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. They pass by the next two guards. They come to the gate. The gate swings open all by itself. And then Peter continues to go, and once he's a good, safe distance from the prison, I guess, the angel disappears, and Peter then realizes this isn't a vision, this isn't a dream, this is actually happening. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So again, we have this subversive work of of prayer uh, going on in uh, Mary's house. Now, the house to which Peter goes is the home, we are told, of Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark. Two things. Mary, John Mark's mother, is mentioned first. She is likely an independent woman of means. She is probably uh, um, doesn't have a husband at this point because he's not mentioned. He would normally be mentioned in that context. The house is big enough to have some people uh, come together and, and worship and pray together. And she has a servant She has a servant girl named Rhoda. So she probably has some means. She's an independent woman. She is what uh, one of what uh, scholars refer to, some scholars refer to in Luke's writings, the Gospel of Luke and, and the Book of Acts, as leading women. Leading women in community, leading women in the church. Again, more subversion in a culture that demeans and diminishes women as a rule. It is often those among whom we least expect it that God moves and works and does his kingdom work. Second, John Mark will later become the author of the gospel of Mark. The seeds of the first gospel about Jesus to be written, and the one from whom two of the other gospel writers borrowed, the seeds of that gospel are planted, sown into this encounter as well. Verse 13, so Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When She recognized Peter's voice. She was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Prayer is subversive, all right, so subversive that not even those who were praying for Peter seemed to realize how powerful it was. Their prayers had already been answered and they couldn't believe their ears. You're out of your mind, they said to the servant girl. Only the servant, Rhoda, only she knew what was true, and she was so excited, she left Peter standing outside and ran to tell everybody in her joy. It's a bit of comic relief in the midst of a very dramatic story. There's yet more subversion in this story. The servant, the servant is the one who gets it right, not the church leaders. And not coincidentally, hers is the first voice heard from a Christian woman in the book of Acts. Hers is the first voice heard from a Christian woman in the book of Acts, subversion. Peter comes in. He quiets them down a little bit. He tells them the whole miraculous story of his rescue from Herod. And then he's off, Luke says, to another place. And then we come back to the prison to see the aftermath of Peter's rescue. Herod searches for Peter, but is unable to find him. Once again... Herod's violent abuse of power is evident here. He cross-examines the guards, and then he has them executed. See, that's what abuse of power does. Perhaps it was out of fear or anger or insecurity or all of the above, but in the end, Herod does the only thing he knows to do. He tries to bury the story with violence. Is he punishing those soldiers, or is it something else? Maybe he simply doesn't want their story to get out. Maybe he simply doesn't want people thinking that God is somehow at work in, through, around, in spite of him. Maybe that's too dangerous. Maybe the subversive work of the Holy Spirit is unnerving to him. So this is where the passage ended this morning in our reading. But wait, there's more. What comes next is important. For something is not right In Jerusalem, the persecution is ongoing and it's just getting more and more fierce. The powers that be seem to have all the power. But then we read, end of verse 19, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So here what we have is the kind of detail that you expect from an historian like Luke. And it really gives us a sense that Luke knows exactly what he's talking about when he gives us this kind of detail. He's been very careful about this. But all of it is really uh, we get sort of the 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 background, the backroom stuff going on in Herod's reign, but really all of it is really just a setup. Just the backdrop for what happens next. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This strange story is actually verified by the historian, the ancient historian named Josephus. He writes that Herod, quote, put on a garment made wholly of silver. He writes of the early morning sun striking that garment so that it it was, quote, illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. The people see this, Josephus says, and they gasp. And he too, Josephus too, says that the people shouted out that he was a god, that he was superior to humankind. And Herod did not rebuke them. Herod did not correct them for this assessment. And at once, Josephus says, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And then he died five days later. Herod had all the power in this story. He was violent, he was volatile, so, and so he thought... Uh, in control of all things that's what empire thinks but the subversive power of the gospel was at work nonetheless the seed planted in the story back in verse five when we were told that the church was praying earnestly to god for peter that seed has begun to sprout and to bear fruit and the clear understanding of luke in the early church was that god had passed judgment Herod for these things and more the subversive work of the gospel leads to victory The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We find this promise and related promises all throughout Scripture. Here are a few. Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And again in Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's just a taste, just a sample of all the promises of scripture where we are told that jesus will have the ultimate victory and that we will share in that victory then and we can even share in it now the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our god so let's come back to whatever that issue was that you were able to name as one thing that you deeply wish was fixed in the world made right redeemed healed If the good news of the kingdom of this is that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God, how are we to respond? First, let us each continue to engage in the subversive act of prayer. Let us continue to engage in the subversive act of prayer. Let us not underestimate prayer's power to change us and to partner with God as God changes the world. Let us pray to God knowing that somehow in the mystery of how God rules the world, somehow your prayers, my prayers, matter. And let us pray faithfully knowing that our ongoing disciplines of prayer, if we make prayer a part of our lives, they will change us too. They will form the image of Christ within us, that Christiformity that we talk about. Second, let us work toward the healing and the justice and the victory toward which God is taking all things. Let us work on these things now. <clears throat> you know, if you, if you were to go back and read some of the congregational minutes of churches a couple hundred years ago, as they were debating whether or not Christians should or could own people as slaves, you would discover in those debates that both sides used Bible verses to bolster their argument. But I have come to understand, come to know, not on my own through reading that I've done, I have come to understand, to strongly believe that the problem was they were asking the wrong question. And friends, when you don't ask the right question, you don't get the right answer. They were asking the wrong question. The question wasn't merely, does the Bible Permit slavery or condemn it? That's the wrong question. The question should have been, will there be slavery in the new heavens and the new earth? And the answer is clearly no. People will not own other people in the new creation. And if there will not be slavery in the new creation or whatever other challenge we might be able to name this morning... Then it is our calling to bring it healing and justice and redemption now. Not just to wait for God to fix it all. God will fix it all. But He calls us to partner with Him now. But please, whatever your passion or passions are, please do not expect the church as an institution to do all of this for you. The church is not first and foremost an institution, the church is first and foremost the body of believers as people. Please do not think that every cause has to have a new ministry or a new ministry program attached to it. Simply choose this day, this week, to educate yourself and to find a way to have an impact on the very issues for which God has given you and other people such passion. Connect with other organizations, partner with them, And if you can't find anyone who is out there doing what you have a passion for, that you can partner with, then fine, go start a new one. And that's it. Pray and work. Pray and work. Pray for the subversive work of the gospel in you, in us, in our community, and in our world. And work toward the restoration of all things wherever you find that work to do. Our passage finishes once again with the promise of victory, subversive victory. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God continued to spread and flourish and flourish in spite of persecution in spite of loss and pain and suffering and evil and injustice and the death of one of the first apostles in spite of all of that the word of god and by that they mean the word the good news about jesus the word of god continued to spread to increase and to flourish right down to today The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So as we close this morning, we're not going to sing again, but we can reflect, we can meditate and pray as others sing. The song that we're going to do that with, we have sung here many times. But it has a special meaning in the context of our passage and our current challenges in our community and nation and world. It begins, walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall. But you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come. Knowing the battles won. For you have never failed me yet. So let us turn these words into prayer this morning. Around that evil, that injustice, that pain that we put in the front of our minds at the beginning of the sermon this morning. And then as we leave this place in the days to come, let us continue to pray and to ask God where we are to work on these things and toward these things, where we are called to be a part of the solution and not just a part of the problem. For we know that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. By the grace of God, let us be a part of God's kingdom reign even now. Let us partner with God even now in his purposes in the world. Would you join with me as I close us in prayer? Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ,